between 80 and 90 percent of, of global emissions come from the private sector, knowing that we need to be working hand in glove and pushing them as hard as possible via all levers uh, to fully decarbonize. listening to Amplifier, Raising Voices Against Rising Temperatures. We're a group of Emory students, alumni, and a professor passionate about bringing people together around the current climate crisis. We aim to equip listeners to accelerate climate action by providing accessible information, amplifying diverse voices, and highlighting the intersections of environmental issues. Join us this season as we explore the United Nations Conference of the Parties, or COP26, and discuss what we can expect from this year's negotiations. Welcome to episode two of Amplifier season three, dissecting the corporate net zero landscape. I'm Zola Berger-Schmitz, and I'll be hosting today's podcast episode along with Ryan Thorne. We'd also like to give special thanks to another member of our team, Caitlin Boisvert, for her help with the development of this episode and for completing the final post-production editing. Today, we'll be diving into a topic that has become ever more salient in the lead up to COP26, the rapid uptake of corporate net zero pledges. As it becomes increasingly evident that reliance on fossil fuels is no longer economically or socially viable, companies have started to recognize that they need to fundamentally uproot their business models and rapidly decarbonize in order to stay profitable while being corporately responsible. Furthermore, With the spread of campaigns like the UN Race to Zero initiative, the growth of organizations like the Science-Based Targets initiative, and mounting pressure from internal and external stakeholders, hundreds of companies ranging from small-medium enterprises to Fortune 500 firms are beginning to pledge that they will reach net zero emissions by 2050. Beyond individual companies, partnerships such as the Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance have formed to spur institutional investors to take action towards creating less carbon-intensive investment portfolios. At the global level, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change provides a clear definition of net zero. Net zero emissions are reached when anthropogenic or human-caused emissions of greenhouse gases to the atmosphere are balanced by anthropogenic removals over a specified period. But what does it really mean to reach net zero emissions in a corporate context? And how meaningful are these pledges if companies within different sectors interpret net zero differently? From a technical standpoint, companies have to think first about maximizing reductions in their operations and their value chains at the level needed to align with a pathway that limits temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Then, in order to reach net zero, many companies will also have to think about neutralizing any leftover or residual emissions that cannot be directly reduced through permanently removing carbon from the atmosphere. In this episode, we'll hear from two guests, 
one who is involved in helping define how companies and investors engage with the net zero arena at one of the leading sustainability nonprofits in the US, Ceres, and another who works at a Scottish small medium enterprise, Gravitricity, that is at the forefront of developing the technologies we'll need to implement in order to make net zero a reality. With COP26 only a few weeks away, we've asked both our guests to provide their insights on the current state of the corporate net zero landscape and the momentum that COP26 might provide in helping further accelerate the push towards corporate net zero alignment. Joining us today to discuss the corporate net zero landscape is Harlan Cutshaw, an Emory alum who serves as the manager of foundation relations at Ceres a sustainability nonprofit that works with the largest businesses and investors to build a just, sustainable economy. Harlan, thank you so much for taking the time to share your perspectives before COP26. We're thrilled to have you as a guest on Amplifier. My pleasure. Thank you so much for reaching out and for asking me to join. To start off, we wanted to ask you a bit about how your career path led you to Ceres and what your current work entails. For sure. Um, so I graduated from Emory in the spring of 2015 with a degree in international relations, but had always been really fascinated in politics and campaigns. And after college, um, moved back to my home state of Maine, where I spent a year and a half running fundraising for a statewide ballot initiative in the 2016 cycle. After taking a little bit of time to, to rest up after an 18-month campaign cycle, was looking for jobs at the combination of climate work, environmental work, and fundraising, using my fundraising skills. Um, I came across Ceres without having a ton of knowledge about the organization beforehand, but the combination of its mission and the role that was open were really fascinating, and, and four and a half years later, I've been with Ceres ever since. Um, we are a nonprofit organization that derives the vast majority of its annual operating budget from private foundations. Um, so we have a team of about eight who manage the relationships with the foundations that support our work. And in my role, I oversee fundraising for a variety of our programs, including a lot of our work related to clean transportation, climate finance, sectoral decarbonization, and state and federal level climate policies, which means that I'm working day in and day out with some of the largest climate foundations in the country and, and indeed in the world on writing grant proposals, grant reports, stewarding our funders through update calls and, and meetings when we're able to do that again, um, joining them for briefings, pitching them on new projects and programs that we're developing and getting their insights and, and bringing them closer to the work that we're doing uh, to continue to ensure their long-term support. Thanks so much, Harlan, for that detailed explanation. As you think about fundraising in the net zero space specifically, what are some of the ways in which the corporate net zero landscape impacts your work on a day-to-day -day basis? And, and how does your perspective at Ceres inform your, your views on corporate net zero? Yeah, I, I, it's, it's been fascinating now having been at Ceres for four and a half years and really seeing how this landscape has evolved. When I, when I first got here, we were doing a lot of work on moving companies to set individual commitments related to their energy productivity or their renewable energy procurement, which is very important. But the way that the tenor of the conversation has changed in the last couple of years with the, the most recent IPCC reports and, and the, the obvious need for such a greater degree of ambition has been reflected not only in our program staff's approach to this work and shifting away from individual, you know, 25% RE 
procurement by 2030 commitments towards looking at moving companies to set net zero commitments, to set science-based targets inclusive of, of all three scopes of emissions, and, and seeing how our funders respond in, in kind with that. You know, what we used to be able to talk to them about, what they used to be, you know, applauding and, and excited to hear about is no longer sufficient. And, and that matches our level of ambition, that matches the movement's level of ambition. Um, recognizing that we've got a really, really short amount of time to bend the GHG emissions trajectory, and we need to be firing on all cylinders to make sure that we do so. Um, there are concerns, obviously, with corporate net zero commitments. I'm sure we'll get into that throughout this conversation that we remain cognizant of and that, that we make sure, especially working with really large actors like businesses and investors, that we're not letting them off the hook, that we're not letting them greenwash, that we're not letting them get away with inadequate action, um, but also recognizing that between 80 and 90% of, of global emissions come from the private sector, knowing that we need to be working hand in glove and pushing them as hard as possible via all levers uh, to fully decarbonize. Absolutely. It's been amazing to see, especially over the past five years, how net zero ambition has accelerated so greatly. In light of this ratcheting of ambition, there are certainly definitional challenges that come into play when we think about net zero and how it's interpreted by different stakeholders, both within the corporate community, within the public sector, within the technical community. And what do you see as some of the biggest challenges in coming to a standardized definition of net zero? For sure. I think that a lot of the challenges in this space come from recognizing the varying degrees of uh, potential for certain sectors to decarbonize. It's, it's a lot easier for the electric power sector to switch to clean power generation and to reach net zero at a utility than it is for a fossil fuel company like an oil and gas producer to reach net zero, particularly for something like their, the emissions from the consumption of their products when their entire business is predicated on producing something that leaches carbon into the atmosphere. And I think that that, that discrepancy, the fact that there truly is no one-size-fits-all solution has been one of the largest challenges to, to accelerating the decarbonization of the economy that we need. Are there specific strategies that you've experimented with or you know, taken specifically within series to combat some of these issues that come up with sectoral differences and also with different interpretations of net zero? Of course. So series power base comes from leveraging the power of investors over the publicly traded companies that they own. We have an investor network on climate risk and sustainability, which is comprised of about 210 members representing I believe 37, 38 trillion dollars in assets under management. We are also one of the co-founders and co-leads of the Global Climate Action 100 Plus 100 Plus initiative, which has organized about 550 investors worldwide to engage with about 160 of the world's largest, heaviest emitted companies. Um, within those cohorts of investors, we have been able to use the unique power that they have as as owners of these companies to encourage and where necessary push these companies as hard as possible to recognize that they are producing legitimate risks to their business legitimate risks to their shareholders from unchecked climate change and from a lack of action to mitigate these risks we have working groups established for various sectors that will develop sectoral expertise within the investors that are engaged on that so that they can be better equipped 
to engage companies in that sector on the specific transition pathways or the specific challenges. So we may engage investors through our land use and climate working group on how a food company can decarbonize, which is going to look very different than the conversations that are going on in our carbon asset risk initiative working group, which is talking about how oil and gas producers and electric utilities can decarbonize. I think, you know, recognizing that most of the event investors that we work with are real economy holders, that they're not specifically focused on one specific sector, but are have more generalist knowledge that spans the entire economy, building that capacity within their engagement teams and within their ability to understand the challenges that face a steel company versus General Motors, um, as well as some of the interplay so that they can, you know, relate this knowledge and, and reapply it where possible has been really important and enabled us to to engage these companies in a way and from a position of strength that that compels them to move. Considering all that you've mentioned, what are some of the, the biggest wins that Sirius has had in the last few years surrounding net zero, uh, specifically in, in the investment space? And, and what do you see in the next few years as the biggest challenges in pushing that momentum forward and getting investors to make concrete net zero commitments as opposed to just paying lip service to the idea of net zero? Absolutely. You know, I think one of the exciting exciting things that I've seen, especially in the last year and a half, um, which his series has been at the, the forefront of, is making it clear to investors, it's it's fantastic for you to be engaging your portfolio companies on reaching net zero. You also need to reach net zero yourselves. You can't just be talking the talk. You must also walk the walk and decarbonize your portfolio holdings. So that involves engagement necessarily through it. If, you, if you're holding companies that have significant emissions footprints, you can either divest from them or you can engage with them to cut down their own emissions footprints such that your emission footprint falls in tandem. It's, it's been really exciting to see the momentum that's grown in that realm in the last year and a half, um, both from asset owners as well as some of the largest asset managers in the world, companies like State Street and BlackRock and Vanguard that are all at different stages of their sustainability journey, um, but which collectively hold tens of trillions of dollars and are the linchpins to making sure that this can all be successful. Um, so to, to answer both of your questions with kind of the same answer, I think you know, acknowledging their progress thus far, acknowledging that they're going to have a different transition pathway than an electric utility is going to have, but also realizing that despite the fact that they are our power base, despite the fact that they make up our largest asset in this in this conversation, that we must also maintain the pressure on them because if they continue to hold fossil fuel stocks that will not transit that don't have a conceivable transition pathway that will assume that business as usual can persist a lot of the good work that they're doing is going to be undercut so i think that's a, a massive opportunity in the coming years but also a risk that we need to remain cognizant of that transitions really well to to cop 26 in a sense you know you mentioned harlan a little bit about the pressure that we need to maintain how do you see cop 26 potentially playing a role in, in the net zero space, especially for investors, and how do you think that COP26 may accelerate pressure and momentum, uh, especially in the coming five years? Well, I'm hoping it's going to be a watershed, especially after not not being able to take place last year and, and the global stage losing that opportunity to, to ratchet up momentum further. You know, I think the 
what I'm most excited for coming out of COP or what I'm very excited to see, I think, what, what becomes a COP is the pressure that gets placed on the economy through policy and regulations and, and the, the conversations that will transpire between heads of state related to things like mandatory climate risk disclosure for companies operating within their jurisdictions or um, economy-wide net zero targets for entire countries or entire geographic zones. Realizing that voluntary corporate action is critical, corporate action which is spurred by investor pressure is critical, but until there is meaningful, robust, resilient policy in place, it's going to be really hard to meet all of the the ambition that we need to and, and to sufficiently drive down emissions reductions. So I'm, I'm really hopeful that policymakers can meet the moment at COP26 when everyone convenes in Glasgow next month and, and realize that this in many ways is our last best chance to, to do what needs to be done and that they will be bold and ambitious and brave and that the private sector will be ready to stand up and support them. Dear listeners, welcome to Amplify. This podcast episode provides you with an opportunity to learn or re-familiarise yourself with the significant contribution that small and medium-sized enterprises in the United Kingdom are making towards reducing global greenhouse gas emissions. From previous shock events in recent history, such as the global financial crisis of 2008, we know that SMEs are among those businesses which are heavily impacted by crisis situations and are often those businesses which suffer the most extreme consequences of prolonged financial recession. This links directly with limited lending and borrowing opportunities during these periods, which, as we navigate our way back into the post-pandemic economy, is giving rise to concern that SMEs will not cope with the expensive adaptations which they are required or indeed mandated in many instances to make to the businesses in order to assist society with the transition to net zero economy. Through the example of Gravitricity, a Scottish-based SME here in Edinburgh which focuses on developing new forms of green energy storage solutions, we explore what can happen when SMEs are set up with these update, with these business models at the grassroots. That's to say, an SME which is not focusing on adapting current business models, but one which is set up or indeed inspired by green energy solutions. Advancing this then, Throughout this episode, we deal with notions of risk and uncertainty in order to strategize new ways to prepare and plan for shock events. As part of this, we determine that risk and uncertainty are two separate and distinct concepts, and together, when used or coupled, can allow for earlier foresight and preparedness. This ultimately offers SMEs a better chance of survival into the decade for decisive action. Further, we address notions of governance, who will provide help and support for SMEs and what sort of support they might need as we navigate our way back out into the economy. Welcome. Um, my name is Ryan Thorne. Um, I'm a master's student at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm invited you here today to um, have a quick interview for our podcast. Um, so we're really excited to hear about um, the work that Gravitricity are doing, as well as some of your uh, other general views on decarbonisation in Europe and the UK and how the energy transition is taking place ahead of COP26. So if you just want to introduce yourself and, and let us know a wee bit about you. Yep. Um, hi, Ryan. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Ruth Apps. I'm the Business Development Manager for Gravitricity. 
um, Gravitricity is developing a new form of mechanical energy storage. Um, we're based in Edinburgh. Now, if you don't know much about energy storage, uh, so if you put more renewables onto your electricity networks, you're going to need a form of energy storage. There's three main types. Um, obviously, there's mechanical, so what we're developing, which is with weights up and down a shaft. Pumped hydro is also a form of energy storage, and it's mechanical. That's with water up and down a mountain. Then you have your batteries, which are a form of chemical energy storage. And then you have heat, but that sort of doesn't get covered so much in the forms of energy storage we're going to talk about, especially in relation to the UK and Europe. Yeah. And how is this... Um... How is this energy storage um, technology that Gravitricity are developing set to change um, the, the pathway to, to net zero and uh, maybe um, assist us, I guess, in getting there sooner? Yep. Um, so any form, so if you want to put more renewable gen form to generation on your electricity network, so basically your electricity usage profile of your consumers is often different to when your, your generation profile, i.e., the sun shines when you don't need electricity or the wind blows at nighttime when people are asleep. So what you want to do is store that energy, that electricity that's being generated. And to do that, you form a user form of energy storage. Now, every market is slightly different, but what Gravitricity does is we do long duration storage, anything from 15 minutes up to four hours. So it gives you that very good hit. If you have a peak of, say, two hours and say, typical UK evening, 7 to 9 p.m. we have a really high peak because it's dark, people start switching on their lights, turning on their kettles, having cups of tea, and then these create spikes. And you want to obviously have a form of energy storage there ready if you want to put more renewables on the electricity network to meet those peaks in demand. And so having a system like Gravitricity is ideal because it can cover the full two hours or more of those peaks. If you just want a short hit of energy storage, say for five minutes or 10 minutes, you'll use batteries or something or in your home you'll use a battery system because you won't need a big level of storage but if we're a gravitricity system or a pumped hydro system you can do it at a transmission scale of storage transmissions uh, transmission network for anyone who doesn't know is your pylons that are your electricity towers that are your big 100 megawatt and plus wind farms in size bigger generation goes onto a transmission network. And what makes Gravitricity also unique is that we also do, unlike other forms of energy storage, we can provide ancillary services. Now, ancillary services are services to electricity network that enable the, basically, the electricity to flow around the circuit. And you need them to keep the electricity flowing because uh, it's a finely balanced system. Every electricity network, everyone probably knows, has a different uh, frequency, and that needs to be held consistent. And so you'll need things like fast frequency response to hold it at that consistent frequency, which is something Gravitricity can do because we can get our system to respond in sub one second. That sounds wonderful, Ruth. And as, how has the reception of this been in Scotland? Um, so it's an Edinburgh-based firm. Um, you're not too far from where I grew up in Glasgow, um, <laughs> which is nice to, to be, be finding local SMEs who are directing what they're doing there to, you know, bigger green cause. But um. What has the reception been in Scotland? As, has, has people wanted to partner? Have, have you had much um, interest from businesses? Yeah, well, we're just down the road from Glasgow in Edinburgh. Uh, for those who don't know Scotland very well. Um, but um, it's been really good. I mean, you've got to remember, so Gravitricity's aim is that we use sharp mine shafts to raise and lower weights up and down. Now, if people don't know the history of Scotland, Scotland has a very long uh, mining legacy. And that means that there's still people alive, probably in their 60s, late 50s, 60s, who've worked down deep coal mines in Scotland. So they are very excited to see assets repurposed. 
the Scottish government in general have a very clear vision of a just transition, i.e. basically we have a big oil and gas industry sector here still, and they want to decarbonize that, obviously, and they want to do it in a just transition is making sure that no uh, community is stranded. And yeah. so you want technologies like gravitricity to come in and give the community something else that can replace the industries that are going to be taken away. Yeah. So you want to reskill or, or repurpose people's skills into a new sector. And Scotland's very good because we've got a renewable sector that's growing. And so having so for us, that's a really good synergy because obviously you need a renewable sector if you want energy storage. Mm. So it works really well for us. Yeah, wonderful. And I, I definitely, I like that narrative of um, a just transition. I think uh, from my own research, one of the, the big concerns with switching to renewable forms and, and leaving old forms behind is, like you say, the oil workers who are used to going off the sh- offshore and going, going on the oil rigs and doing the job there, they, they suddenly have no jobs or uh, there's a whole process, a whole I suppose it's much like uh, an ecosystem, well, much like the ecosystems we're trying to decarbonize to protect them. This industry is is vast and particularly in Scotland, it employs um, across many sectors. Um, I know from Time and Shetland, for example, even the two, even hotels there depend on workers and stuff like that who are coming through um, as passing trade. So you're right to say in Scotland there's a there's a massive legacy that, that is rooted in fossil fuel and green infrastructure. So thank you for covering that um, so well. So w- what kinds of um, barriers has Gravitricity experienced with developing their infrastructure and, and also um, as part of those barriers maybe just trying to roll the, pro- the projects out? So we're a small SME, we're technically, we're not a startup anymore but because we've been around a bit too long but you obviously have the same challenges whatever startup you are whether you're in the tech sector whether you're in like the health and beauty sector or the consumer sector so we started in 2011 now we first put our first patents in 2011 we didn't start the idea the actual uh pushing towards building a product until 2016 because our market wasn't there you don't want to be the first entrant into the market unless you've got something because or else you're waiting for the market to catch up and you've got to build, basically you've got to build your sales pipeline. You've got to make sure money's coming in or investment coming in. Yeah. So if you're too early to market, you're going to struggle. Yeah. Um, so you don't really want to be, so you just want to make sure your market is just ready, just at the right time for you, your product to be ready. So it's, and it's very hard for engineering firms like ours because you've got to make sure it, your engineering team are up to speed to do that at the yeah. right time. Yeah. So we wanted to make sure the renewable sector had grown significant uh, to a certain size before we started. And then we knew with more renewables in the system, we would be needed. Um, with SME support in general, there's been Scottish Enterprise are very good at supporting SMEs in Scotland. I mean, you have to seek out that advice, that support, but it's very easy to access, which mm-hmm. is always very useful for companies of whatever type they are. And it also means you get to meet other companies. And if you ever start a company, it's really good to learn off peers. So for example, say if you wanted to build your expenses or your CRM or all the operations at the background, it's actually better to ask someone who's got a similar sized company, like, what do you use? What's the pros and cons of that? And then you just take that and use it. Because say, for example, if you need a PR company because you need to uh, get a media attention to get investors in, you don't want to be able to go necessarily to the biggest PR agency you can find. You want to work with one that's sim- sort of similar size so that then you're not just give, given your junior account manager. Look, there's nothing wrong with being junior. You want someone who knows the industry really well and it yeah. will actually work really well for you. 
So, and Scotland's really good at that. There's a lot of smaller established businesses in Scotland and depth of knowledge. Is it really easy for small firms to do that and to uh, develop on? Take, for example, our PR agent, Neil Davidson. He, he runs the PR for about five renewable companies. Yeah. And he's been doing this for like 26 years at least. Mm-hmm. So he's got that depth of knowledge, but he's really good at working with small scale firms. And there's a lot of firms like that in Scotland. Yeah, yeah. And that, I think... Um... You know, like what I'm hearing is that SMEs in this sector have a lot, a lot to contribute, like gravitricity and um, money and uh, finance, cash flow can be an issue. But there's definitely support there in Scotland, which extends itself to maybe larger issues outside of Scotland. You know, like um, if there was more similar support available for small, medium-sized enterprises doing what gravitricity is doing, maybe um, we could transition to to net zero sooner and indeed with less turbulence because um, what, what, what we're sort of seeing from media and from news reports is that we're, we're not ready to make that transition just yet. But it seems that Scotland is, is quite ahead of the competition in terms of, you know, like how much uh, renewable energy it's bringing in and um, it seems to be doing very well. So has that something Gravitricity have watched? You talked about the market being right and being ready for the energy for you to, to you guys to go in. Um, with your product is, is that something you have watched evolve over time the the amount of green energy space in Scotland like really pick up the amount of green energy that's gone on in Scotland to date is, is crazy yeah. I think that's the only word and what is about to happen in the next 15 years is crazier still okay. so I think um, I was in a meeting the other day I'd have to check these numbers and I think she transmission was saying they only take one it's it's like they've got only about 25% of their their is actually consumed in Scotland. Most of it was all shipped to England. It's crazy the amount yeah. of electricity just flowing through Scotland. About four times as amount heads south towards England, towards London. Yeah. And they're having to build massive infrastructure to do that. And it's just offshore wind farm after offshore wind farm. And then all the land-based uh, wind farms are now being at the age where they're getting upgraded. So they're going to become bigger. Yeah. So the numbers in Scotland, I think, are bonkers. Uh, I think that's a technical term for it, but um, it is, is a, it's a good narrative for an energy storage company. Yeah. Um, and we're, we're based so close to Europe, there's also a narrative there. Yeah. Because a lot of Eastern Europe, they're still on coal, but they're coming off coal and going to renewables. So you've got all that knowledge flowing into the local, into their energy systems. Because the thing I think um, is within Europe, all these all of our electricity networks are connected. And you have to remember that what, ha- so that means that the knowledge share is shared between the between all the network operators. Even though the UK has left Europe because of Brexit, the electricity network operators still work together because what happens in one area affects another. Mm-hmm. So, so that knowledge of what's happened in Scotland about having so many renewables go onto the electricity network is obviously feeding the information that's going into other areas that maybe aren't at the stage where they have high renewable penetration yet, but they will have. Yeah. And that's really a good story for gravitricity because those areas are sort of thinking about um, energy storage five years down the line, which is useful for us. Yeah, definitely. And 100%, I agree that the figures for Scotland really do. And they're a positive indication. I, I have here the energy statistics for Scotland for um, the final quarter in 2020. And it was estimated that over 97% of Scotland's gross energy consumption was derived from re- renewable green uh, sources, which I'm, you know, delighted uh, to read. And that um, that figure was less than the 100% target, but 
you know, overwhelmingly positive and, and definitely it's clear that electricity, renewable electricity generation in Scotland is increasing and it's shown as increasing by 4.2% between 2019 and 2020. So um, you're right, there's going to be, I think, I'm excited for Gravitricity because I think there's going to be a real need for storage solutions as we um, move further into the next decade. And it's really, I think Gravitricity is a really fascinating example of an SME or just a business in general who is not adapting models to function within climate change. They're not adapting business models to, to, to suit you know the, the the changes that will be mandated by government, etc. But rather, they are they're um, developing a business over that period of since two thousand eleven to now, particularly two thousand sixteen onwards, which um is exactly suited to the the current state of the world. And and yeah, that that's pretty unique that you guys aren't adapting. You are actually developing solutions and at a very early stage. What what um what do you think is going to be the hardest thing? for other SMEs who need to adapt their business practices um, for climate change? Gravitacy, when it was founded, was always founded on the concept of net zero and having a renewable energy. So we always knew very clearly that was our mission. That was our statement. So for us, it was always embedded. For other companies, it's, it's, it's bringing that idea, that, that net zero and how it impacts your business and bring it into your mission and yeah. not just as something you do as an add-on, now, obviously, for SMEs, that's easier because that's smaller. Mm-hmm. Someone can take ownership of it and drive that change through the business. It's really understanding your business, I think. I'm really excited to have um, Scottish business supported in Scotland and grown in Scotland who, who are quite capable, clearly, of, of leading an international change and transition. So thank you from us, from our generation, who, who are really probably going to be around to see the long-lasting effects of, of your work. So um, really appreciate that. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Season 3, Episode 2 of Amplifier, Dissecting the Corporate Net Zero Landscape. This week's episode was reported by Zola Berger-Schmitz and Ryan Thorne and produced by Caitlin Boisvert. The music was provided by Zola Berger-Schmitz and the graphics by Tyler Stern. <laughs>